Well, good morning. I brought some show and tell. Scott just had a coronary. Thought I was going to touch his guitar. Anybody know what this is? You guys know what this is? There's a lot of answers. That's weird. Do you know what this is? It's a game. What game? It is an awesome game, right? I hold in my hands, at least for my family, a weapon of mass destruction. (laughs) How many of you can relate to that alone? That this game causes something inside of you right now just to tense up. There's a little bit of added stress just by seeing this logo. Yeah, anybody relate to that? This is one of my all-time favorite games. It's a game that in our family, we're pretty close to having to outlaw even having the box in our home. It's no surprise really to me at at 37, almost 37 years old, uh, that this game brings as much difficulty to my uh, family life as it does because uh, this game is not allowed in my parents' home. It's not allowed within 30 feet of the property. There is something about the game of Monopoly that causes much strife and difficulty in many relationships, in many families. I, I, I found a cartoon that I think sums it up pretty well. Here's what a family looks like before playing a game of Monopoly. You see this on the screen. It's a nice family, cute, and here's what happens immediately following a game of Monopoly. You see it? You relate? I don't know exactly what it is about playing Monopoly that brings out the competitive uh, nature within myself, but there's something about winning at Monopoly that requires you to be ruthless. Not a very good team playing game, right? Because the object of the game of Monopoly is to win, no matter the cost, especially if the other adult in the family gets up to go make some tea or get a snack or something. It's not that I cheat at Monopoly, if you call it cheating. It's that it's much more advantageous for me to stage a miniature coup with the two other players who are very impressionable. I mean, I mean, things like the fact that I was born or I lived, I wasn't born, I, I, I lived in New York helped me to sell the fact that one of them should give me New York Avenue. <laughs> you understand? And when you can talk two children into helping you win the game, it makes things a lot easier. But this game is not a, a, a peacemaking game in our family. Thus, the reason it is nearly outlawed within the confines of our home, if you want to play Monopoly with me, bring it. (laughs) This morning, not surprisingly, our beatitude takes us to the subject of peacemakers. 
We're continuing in this series of messages through the summer on the Beatitudes that Jesus preaches in Matthew chapter 5. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 9. Let's review our Beatitudes thus far. Jesus preaches this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This morning, specifically, we're going to narrow our focus on that verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Pray with me. Jesus, help us to tear down the walls that we build up, the pretenses, the biases that we have towards the powerful truth and the supernatural ability your word has of changing us. Amen. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the non-monopoly players. For they will be called children of God. The first point I want to note together this morning is the apparent result of being a peacemaker. According to this verse, the verse seems to say uh, in a pretty matter-of-fact way what the result of being a peacemaker is. And I love to note the simplicity of a a passage of Scripture like this, especially in a a, a culture that seems to try to overcomplicate or or pull a verse out of context and tell us uh, what it means in a, a different form of things. There's some simple truths of Scripture that I think like this relate a powerful message to us. And here in this verse, we seem to get a picture that if you are a peacemaker, then you are a child of God. And being children of God is this New Testament uh, truth, this New Testament idea of something that that we want, right? Uh, We want to be known as a a child of God. It is throughout the New Testament as a, a good thing. Look through some passages of Scripture with me. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, Papa Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Do you see the benefit, the contrast, and the comparison of the the, the bonus it is to be a child of God? This is a good thing. We want to be identified as children of God. We have been adopted and empowered to receive from the one true God all of his 
glory. Paul continues the conversation of what a child of God means to be to the Galatians in chapter 4. He writes this, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him, Jesus, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could, again, adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Papa, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you to his heir. The language of being adopted in the family of God and being joint heirs with Jesus is paramount. It is necessary for us to grasp as we understand what it truly means to be a Christian. Friends, again, hear this truth. We cannot earn the title of being a Christian. It is unmerited. It is undeserved. One more passage from John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. The reminder here then for us is that a result of being peacemakers is not just that we are children of God, but that being children of God, transformed by the grace offered through the blood of Jesus Christ, is that you and I are called also to be peacemakers. As heirs, as receivers of this adoption into Christ's family, into the true family of God, as we are received by grace into this, God calls us also to be peacemakers. Please don't miss this truth this morning. The Beatitudes of Jesus are not a prescribed list of medications for us. These are not fix-alls. These are not things that you and I can do to inherit eternal life. Rather, these be attitudes are reminders to the church today, to Christians, to joint heirs, to adopted sons and daughters in the kingdom of heaven mindset of how we are to live. I want to stay here for just another moment. Many of us have a history with Christianity. Uh, We've been maybe raised in the church. We were born into an understanding of what it means to be a Christian And we've been born into an idea, maybe we've been warped a little bit in our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and we've boiled things down to mean something very little more than, if I do this, then I am a Christian. Maybe you've bought into the idea that says, if I I pray, if I go to church, if I'm humble, if I'm meek, if I'm self-controlled, if I grieve sin, If I learn to be a peacemaker, if I will do these things, then I can be right with God and get into heaven. This is the nature of us as human beings, right? Uh, We we want to know what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do, right? 
Life is easy when we understand the requirements and the things we're allowed to do and the things we're not supposed to do. We like that as a society. We like to know how far we can push our boundaries and what we can get away with. We want the requirements. We like the checkoff list, the list of things to do and not do. But somewhere, friends, in the core of who we are as Christians, somewhere deep inside of our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, we must learn to reorient our understanding that we cannot be or do enough of the right things to earn our salvation. Isn't it true that just as often as we're given the list of things we're supposed to do and not do, we find ourselves time and time again not doing very good at measuring up to the list of requirements. These scriptures here this morning remind us that in transformation through grace only available through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are transformed and adopted into the family of God. We're adopted as we surrender our will for Christ's will. And the result of our adoption are the marks of an adopted son or daughter. So at the core of who we are, we need to reverse this trend within Christendom that says if I can do enough stuff right, then I will inherit eternal life. And instead, we need to understand at its core that we are adopted and it has nothing to do with us except that we surrender to the availability of adoption. And then, because we're adopted into God's family, we pray. We want to be in communication with our Papa, Daddy, Father. Amen? Because we're adopted into God's family, we learn to attend church and fellowship with believers. It's a, a weekly family reunion with God's children, right? Because we're adopted into God's family, we grieve sin in our hearts. We look around us and we look at ourselves and we grieve the brokenness that is so apparent in our lives. The things that hurt God's heart should hurt ours as well. And this morning, because we're adopted into God's family, we must learn to be peacemakers, not the other way around. As we are understanding our adoption, our identity in Christ Jesus, we can learn how to be peacemakers in a world of unrest. So if we're to live as peacemakers, as children of God, what exactly is the peace that we're supposed to make? We probably all have a basic understanding of what peace means in the context of what Jesus was relaying. But we need to understand a little bit more the nature of peace as Jesus revealed it. Our culture has a complicated definition of peace, just as Jesus' culture did, as they interpreted the Hebrew word for peace in the first century. Today, peace is a simple bumper sticker icon. Peace is a simple two-finger gesture or an idea of a politician or a, a famous person who says we need to give up some things in order to receive peace. 
we throw the word around, the peace word, when we're talking about unrest in our own country or our neighborhoods, and even the tragedy-stricken headlines from around the world. We wish, maybe pray for world peace and peace in our homes, our neighborhoods, and our workplace relationships. The Hebrew word which we translate as peace is shalom. And as a word, it has a rich, multi-dimensional definition which incorporates harmony, beauty, unity, virtue, safety, security, and justice. Shalom, peace, is more than a lack of hostility, although this is a, certainly a good start for us in many parts of our world. Shalom's definition moves on to say what the world should look like. It represents a positive vision of a life where human beings live as they were intended to live with each other and with God. Oftentimes, as we try to understand what things are, we try to understand them in terms of what they aren't. But for us to equate the word peace and to become peacemakers as simply understanding that peace is the removal of war isn't enough. Our culture probably most often equates peacemaking to peacekeeping. In the New Testament, peace, however, was no longer just the state of rest between nations, but it referred also to the relationship between individuals and with their God. This is seen as we read through the epistles, the letters from Paul to the churches, and he greets them with peace, shalom. This speaks about having peace with the soul and peace with God and peace with each other. This is the sense of peace that Jesus is talking about. When he talks about peacemakers, true peace is not just the absence of conflict, but it is a perfect state of reconciliation. Reconciling one to the other. I read this example this week. It could be said today that North and South Korea are at peace in the sense that they are currently at rest with each other. They are not shooting at each other or dropping bombs at this present moment, but those countries have not reconciled with each other, which is why they are technically still at war with each other. Until those two nations reconcile with each other, they will continue to be poised for open war. The demilitarized zone will continue to exist and foreign troops will continue to be stationed there. North and South Korea are not at peace in the full sense of the word as would be meant by our Lord Jesus. A truce is good, but it is not fully peace. What is peace? What is the peace, the true nature of peace that God wants for us? God delivered a picture to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11 of the true nature of what peace looks like. Listen to this passage of poetry. Isaiah chapter 11, verse six. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion and the child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby 
will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In 2016, on July the 17th, a passage of scripture like this can seemingly be only useful in the walls of a nursery or in the hopeful aspects of things to come. But friends, this is God's definition of peace, and it is peace that is coming. What a picture for us. True reconciliation, right relationship between God and his creation, right relationship between his creation and his creation. This is true peace. We are called to be this kind of peacemaker. Is it possible? Is it possible? Can't we simply just agree that this picture of peace belongs in the nursery and we can write this scripture on a wall somewhere and draw fuzzy animals around it and some rainbows and sunshine? Can't we just, can't we just admit that things are awful and they're gonna continue to be awful and that peace will never happen and the church believes that this day of true and perfect peace is coming. When Jesus returns to take us to our forever dwelling place and establish his forever kingdom, amen? And while we look forward to that day with all we have in us, we still live in this day and we've got work to do. As peacemakers, As adopted sons and daughters, we do not have the benefit of digging a hole in the ground and waiting for the end to happen. Almost everywhere you see our Hyde Wesleyan logo, you see three words attached. Love, grow, and be. Perhaps the most difficult part of love, grow, and be is the be. Because we're human beings. We're hurt human beings sometimes. People hurt us, people disappoint us, people make us mad. We have enemies. But as we understand scripture to tell us to be peacemakers, Jesus' words, Blessed are the peacemakers, though they will be called children of God. We've got work to do. So how can we be about the work of peacemaking in a world like ours? 
How can we be peacemakers? How, Pastor Stevan, can I be a peacemaker in my workplace of people that hate me and if I'm honest, I don't like them either? Yeah, you're with me. What if we start with the Beatitudes? What if we go back to this core teaching of Jesus Christ and we say, this is a starting point for me, remember? How often we we get so overwhelmed by life's junk that we think the mountain in front of us is impassable, that it is absolutely impossible to get around. Can you imagine what the highway builders and engineers originally thought about traveling across our country? And now we've got tunnels that are so much fun to go through. And now we've got mountain passes that are so beautiful to drive across and get from place to place. I I believe with all of my heart that God does not call us to impossibilities. He doesn't tell us to be peacemakers as children of God, as heirs with Jesus Christ, and then laugh at us as we try. He will empower us to live out a contrary to the popular way of life because he's God. The Beatitudes. What if we start there? What if we learn to be poor in spirit? A peacemaker must have an entirely new view of himself. He must not be full of pride or self-centeredness, but he must be filled as one that understands his own need for God's grace and mercy. People who are still proud and self-centered can never truly be peacemakers because our own ego and selfish desire will get in the way. Humility. No politician will preach that we should be humble. No commercial before our favorite program, no storyline within our favorite sitcom will teach us that humility is what wins. No board game will teach us that coming in second or dead last Bankrupt is the way to win. A kingdom of heaven mindset, however, teaches us humility first. Second beatitude is to be mournful over sin. This goes along with the change in the understanding of ourself. We can recognize as we are mournful over sin, our own sin. And in humility, we can examine ourselves before we step out to assist someone else. Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes it this way Brothers and sisters, if anyone or if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself, share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. 
Notice here that to be mournful over our sin requires changing our view of other people. As we learn to be peacemakers, we must no longer see others as adversaries or enemies, but as those who are also entrapped in sin. And this should cause us to have heartbreak, mourning, and grieving for them. Because we're poor in spirit and we mourn over sin, we are also to be merciful. We acknowledge what God has done for us and we want to extend the same hand of mercy that has been given to us as we extend it to others. The Beatitudes go on about being a peacemaker is that the peacemaker is meek. We are to be controlled by God. And as peacemakers, our hunger and our thirst should be after righteousness, not revenge. Our desire should be after the things of God and not the things of man. And all of these beatitudes flow out of a purity of our hearts because of pursuits of cleansing, the cleansing made possible through pursuing holiness in all things. James chapter 3, verse 17 says, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is perfect. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Being a peacemaker involves so much more than the absence of war or being against war. It means working for God's vision for his creation. It means pursuing justice, wholeness, and harmony in our relationships, seeking true reconciliation and restoration both when we wrong someone else and when they wrong us. It means turning the other cheek, choosing in humility to be wronged rather than to be a source of hatred. It means doing the hard work of reconciling with our enemies without resorting to violence. It means getting involved politically and socially, perhaps, promoting whatever peace can be achieved and always working for God's kingdom to flourish. It means sacrificially pursuing the good of others, sometimes at great personal expense. I read a powerful sentence this week that said, perhaps there is no more God-like work for us to do in a broken world than peacemaking. As we close our service this morning, I think it's obvious that our world is without peace, that our communities our nation, I was so pleased yesterday to be able to tune in just briefly throughout the morning with hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of people, Christians, who gathered on the National Mall yesterday, all day, 
from nine in the morning till nine last night. They gathered there to pray, to worship, to talk about togetherness. It was called Together, the event. And it was a beautiful picture of the body of Christ joining together to pray, to humble themselves, and to trust that the sovereign God of this universe is still in control. And so I want to ask us to pray together. We're a part of the body of Christ today. Amen? And we join in that global part of the community that is the church of Jesus Christ. And I want us to pray for peace. And I want us to pray that God would use us as peacemakers. You see, there's a difference there. As we want to pray for peace, we oftentimes want to pray for someone else to make things peaceful or for some other way for things to be peaceful. And Jesus is teaching to us today is that he has given us all that is required as far as it depends upon ourselves to make peace in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our church, in our workplace, in our school. And he desires for us as joint heirs, as adopted sons and daughters, to take on the hard work of peacemaking. Would you stand with me? Would you bow your heads? I just wonder as we finish our time together this morning, if this idea, if this tough job of Jesus calling us to peacemaking resounds in your heart this morning, if you feel like this idea is specifically something you need to be about. I wonder if you would just share that with me by raising your hand so that I may pray for you. Thank you, thank you. All around this place, if you're feeling this morning like there's unrest in your circle, there's all out war maybe, and God is asking you as an adopted son and daughter, to be a peacemaker. Anyone else? Thank you, thank you. All around this place, your brothers and sisters are with you. We're praying for you to be peacemakers, empowered by God's Holy Spirit to live a life contrary to the cultural norm, contrary to the easy way of doing life because he's called us to so much more. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, again we testify of the truth that you have called us to some amazing and difficult ways of life.
sometimes especially in our understanding of what's right within a context of our culture. As our culture teaches and preaches an idea that you can only be on one side or the other in many different contexts, Lord, we know truthfully that as adopted sons and daughters, the side we are on as your children is the only one that matters. Would you help us to put that first? And Lord, I pray collectively for this church family, for men and women, for husbands and wives, for children, for grandchildren, for grandparents, for aunts and uncles, for friends and family here today, that Lord Jesus, you would empower us in our circumstances, in our parts of stories within this community and this world to live out true peacemaking. To restore relationships one-on-one, to be about restoring relationships all through our community in our world. We proclaim the vision you gave to Isaiah of the beautiful peace that will be ours. And we refuse, Lord Jesus, we refuse to hide and wait. And we ask you to empower us to be about bringing your kingdom on this earth even today. Lord Jesus, empower us. Thank you for your spirit which guides us. Thank you for the truth of your scripture and for how it pierces our hearts. Change us forever, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you as you seek to serve and bring peace in your world this week.